0: grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, I was here for four Sundays last July. Some of you re- may remember that. And I haven't been able to, to be back since, so thanks for giving me a second chance. And uh, I have to start with uh, a confession of missing the mark myself. As we look at the text, John chapter 4, and especially as Carol has mentioned Uh, her eagerness uh, to be talking about this text this morning, what a great text it is, Uh, I'm sure when I sent my email, I left a number off, and it's actually John chapter 14. So this sermon is from John chapter 14, verses 8 through 17, and verses 25 through 27, and I'll read these verses in just a moment. I'd like to uh, remind us that on this Pentecost Sunday, there are two texts that are probably being preached on more than any two texts in the world, if we would ask what's being preached in other churches around the world this morning. Uh, One of them would be Acts chapter 2, of course, which is the the classic story of the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples after they had waited for a period uh, after Jesus ascended. He said, you'll be my witnesses, and the power of the Holy Spirit will come on you. And then that happened on Pentecost Sunday. The other text that's being preached on extensively around the world today is John chapter 14 and these verses, because these two readings, Acts 2 and these verses from John chapter 14, are the, the readings from the common lectionary, which is used on a three-year cycle in churches around the world. And often when I'm invited to preach in a church just for a Sunday, uh, rather than navel gaze and wonder what I should preach about, I just say, well, you know, most people in the world this Sunday are going to be preaching about this. And it's not a bad thing to kind of go along with uh, the church around the world. So we're, we're reading a text from John that's being read by millions and we could say tens of millions of believers in other churches this morning worldwide. I begin with verse 8. Philip said, and of course this is in the upper room, um, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then to verse 25 through 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you, As the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The word Pentecost means 50th, and it refers to the 50th day after Easter. It's also the Greek word for the Feast of Weeks. And at this feast, ancient Israel celebrated something. Does anybody remember what they celebrated on the Pentecost Sunday in ancient Judaism, they celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. In New Testament times, Jews pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over the world for this feast. And that's why there were so many there to witness what happened on Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and the gospel was preached in the languages of everybody that was there. They were there to celebrate the law what they got was something else. The first Pentecost Sunday was an explosive event, and that's why I'm calling this sermon Lighting the Fuse. But it wasn't out of the blue. The spirit descended. The gospel message went forth with a bang. The building of God's people took a quantum leap forward, but someone had to get it started. Someone had to light the fuse. And Christ is the one who did that. And we see how he did it in our John 14 reading. And he did it in two ways. And uh, if you take notes, then this is a sermon with two major headings. And the first heading is, He Revealed the Father. Christ lit the fuse of Pentecost by revealing the Father. About 1,986 years ago, Eleven disciples remained in the upper room after Jesus had left, after, excuse me, after Judas had left the last supper table. And we're, we're going to commemorate that last supper event in a few minutes. Uh, minus Judas, I hope. In verse 8, which I just read, and if you've got your Bible, you can be looking at uh, John chapter 14, because I'll kind of comment on these verses as we go along. In verse 8, Philip requests of Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Well, that's what Jesus had been doing for three years. As we see in verse 9, he answers, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And what Christ says there was not just the thoughts of a man from Galilee. Verse 10 says, don't you believe? And he says this directly to Philip. Don't you believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, and you can tell in the original here, when he says the words I say to you, he says to y'all. He talks to Philip individually, and then he says the words I'm saying to you as a group, they're not just my own. In fact, the original says they're not my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. So Christ has been working, God the Father has been working in Christ, and what God has been doing in Jesus called for a response. And so Christ says to them all in verse 11, Believe me, you know, Philip's kind of fumbling around, you know, show us this, and Jesus kind of upbraids him, and then he says in verse 11, Believe me when I say I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. And, of course, Jesus is referring to the healings, the prophecies, the stilling of the storm, the raising of the dead, and other miracles that he had performed during his earthly uh, three years of public service. So that's basically what is going on between Jesus and the disciples. And I'd like to think for a minute uh, what happened when Philip Ask Jesus in verse 8, show us the Father, what's going on in Jesus' response? Well, about three years ago, on April 17th, actually, there was a fire. And that fire was in a city 70 miles south of Dallas. Uh, it was called West. That was the town, West. And uh, this fire caused an explosion, and 500 homes were destroyed. And miraculously, only 15 people were killed. Uh, Twelve of them were first responders who had arrived to try to do something about the fire. That event was in the news this week as investigators concluded that the cause was arson. It's taken them three years to come to that conclusion. Somebody set the fire. There's a $50,000 reward for their capture. This uh, this detonation, this explosion was so powerful that it registered 2.1 on the Richter scale. It literally shook the earth. Well, the earth shook. History was shaken. In eighty thirty when Philip blurted out the words that we've all blurted out one way or the other, God, show us yourself. Uh, Lord, show us the Father. And then Jesus pointed to himself. And we'll see in a minute even more of what that reverberation means for your life as a follower of Christ. But observe first how Jesus is lighting the fuse that exploded on Pentecost the very next day after this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, he is going to go to the cross. He's less than 12 hours away from the cross as he says these words to Philip and the others. And he knows it. Uh, he'll fulfill, in going to the cross, he'll fulfill the father's promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through him. Because Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham. And as Christ speaks to Philip in the upper room as he prepares to die for our sins on the next day, he's fulfilling God's promise to send a prophet like Moses for God's people to heed so they may be saved, as is prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Because he was speaking to them the Father's words just as much as Moses gave the Ten Commandments from God on Sinai, yet not on tablets as with Moses, but on. In person. On the eve of the cross, on the night he was betrayed, Christ is about to fulfill the Father's promise to cause our sins to fall on his own Son. As Isaiah prophesied, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his or her own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Christ is showing them the Father by all the ways he will shortly live out the Father's will. He's giving Peter something to preach about at Pentecost. And this would shake the world, as after Pentecost, the church spread across the Roman Empire and down into Africa and out into India and into China and to all the world until today, right down to West County. And this touches our lives personally. And we see how it does that in verses 12 through 15. Of course, these verses apply to the 11 who heard them, but they also can be applied to our lives, and I would like to do that in three ways. So I'm still under the first point, he reveals the Father, but I'd like to talk about three ways that Jesus' promise to the 11 affects you and affects me. Firstly, because Jesus shows us the Father, verse 12 says that we multiply his message. We multiply his message. At least that's God's intention for us. Jesus says in verse 12, whoever believes in him will also do the works that he does. And greater works than these he will do because Christ is going to the Father. Christ is at God's right hand as I speak. He's interceding for you and for me. Jesus, born of a virgin, born in Galilee, or born in Bethlehem but raised in Galilee, Jesus was just one man preaching God's message in one place at a time. We multiply his presence by our numbers with his heavenly aid here and around the world by our prayers, by those we send, and by our own proclamation, as I'm sure many of you have gone on mission trips. Christ revealed the Father, and because of that, we multiply his message. That's life-changing. Another way that Jesus' revelation of the Father affects our lives personally because Jesus shows us the Father, verse 13 says that we glorify the Father in the Son. And we do this by asking in his name. Now, in his name means by his authority, under his authorization, and for his purposes. It says in verse 14, anything we ask that is in line with Jesus' will and Requested by his authority, Christ will do it. In his name doesn't mean, first of all, that we say in his name, in your name, like a magical spell, and then ask to win the lottery or for a St. Louis Blues hockey victory tonight. It means we request something that is in line with God's good and perfect will. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. Praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean asking whatever we want and expecting God to do what we want, but it means seeking what God wishes and most certainly will perform. And a third way that Jesus' promise on this night, as he reveals the Father affects you and me, It's because he shows us the Father, verse 15 says, we will know his love to obey what he teaches. We will know his love to obey what he teaches. In Jesus' own words, if you love me, you will obey what I command. We can love Christ because he has shown us the Father who is love, and that is transforming The love of the Father comes to us through faith in his Son. And this makes God's commandments not burdensome as we learn what they are and as we learn to live in a state of communion with the Father and response to the Father. We taste the joy of fellowship with God in obedient service to him. Do you ever resent the Lord's commandments? Don't lie to me. Of course we do. (laughs) He says don't gossip. But what do we do anyway? And, you know, you can do it with the keyboard just as easily as you can do it with uh, voice. He says husbands love your wives, but we may ignore them when they need our help. He says love others, but kids in school can form cliques and be mean to each other. When we ignore God's commandments, what's happening is we've lost connection with his love. You can't be in a state of loving communion with God and sin. And when we sin, we've stepped outside of that force field. Of the reality of the love of God. And this is called S-I-N. And it's not pretty. It's ugly. And it's real. And scripture says God hates S-I-N. And that's one reason Jesus had so much to say about it. Now, I, along with my wife, have learned a lot about love. Not only by being together for, it'll be 43 years in August that we've been married. But, uh, we've learned a lot about love and keeping commandments from our dog, whose name is Wolf. And uh, Wolf is a white German shepherd, and he's 100 pounds of muscle and fur, which he sheds terribly. And uh, I learned since we have this German shepherd that they're often called German shedders because they like to you know, emanate their hair. But he's bred to work. And he loves to labor. He loves to patrol the property. we we got 20 acres that we live on out uh, in High Ridge. And uh, he loves to oversee when we're outside working. Wherever you're working, you'll, you'll say, where's where Wolf? And he'll be at some vantage point where he can see the road and see and see you. And, he, and he's just he's keeping it all under control. And then if our neighbors... If their cattle or their llamas or their sheep or their buffalo get loose, they have animals that don't belong in the United States. <laughs> and they have a fence that's from hell. And uh, th- these animals get out, and, and something has to be done. And so um, when you say to Wolf, buffalo or llama or sheep or cow, then he just he, he trembles with the joy and the drama of attacking the intruders and, and getting them out. and He loves to obey the Great Commission, which for him is two words. Get him! <laughs> and he loves to obey. Just show me what to do. I can't wait. Because he loves his owners. Me or my wife. Or our auth- authorized deputies, like our sons. Well by showing us the Father the Father's love encompasses us and it changes our wills and we become service dogs for the Lord. Lord what do you want me to do? That's the thing that's the most important to me is what you wish for me. And we learn to delight in God's will and not our own. We begin to learn to tell the difference which is one of the most critical lessons in Christian living is to learn the difference between what you would like to do and what God would be glorified in you doing. So Christ lit the fuse that exploded at Pentecost by showing his followers the Father, and that had historic consequences, and it's changed everyday lives every day since. But he lit that fuse a second way, and so this is the second major heading. He prepared the eleven to receive God's Spirit. He revealed the Father and prepared the eleven to receive God's Spirit. And this is, of course, the Holy Spirit. and We celebrate the Holy Spirit's powerful manifestation on this Pentecost Sunday. In John 14, we see how the Lord prepared his followers to know what to expect, what to look for, how to respond to, God's powerful presence, when that presence invaded their airspace and filled the air with gospel tidings. The NIV in John 14.26 and in 14.16 calls the spirit the counselor. And different translations translate that word differently. That word, you've probably heard it before in sermons, it's parakletos. And you can translate that. Counselor, helper, encourager, exhorter, admonisher. The Holy Spirit, about whom Jesus speaks here, is God himself. There's only one God. There's not three gods. One God. But it is God himself in that dimension of his infinite being that is not the Father or the Son, yet that is one with the Father and the Son. And this is an eternal mystery, one of the reasons we'll worship God forever. Next Sunday is Trinity Sunday. And are you preaching next Sunday, Jordan? Okay, you can explain the Trinity next Sunday. (laughs) Right now, I want to recall what the 11 were told about the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit or the Counselor. Because God, the Holy Spirit, who shook the earth at Pentecost, makes a drastic difference in our lives if we open ourselves to what he's able to do. What does the Holy Spirit do? What good is he, if I may put it that way? And I'm going to be talking about two major effects of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this is two things under the second heading. The first thing. The Spirit confirms God's unshakable presence with us. The Spirit confirms God's unshakable presence with us. Now, sometimes we'd like for God not to be around. And when we sin, essentially we're saying, I'm checking out, God. (laughs) But one of the great benefits of the Holy Spirit is he keeps us from the destruction of our own ways and cultivates in us such a love for God and assures us of such a presence of God that gradually the sin thing withers. I don't think it withers until we get to heaven totally, but certainly we can grow to be much better and more godly people in this life because of the unshakable presence of God with us that the Holy Spirit confirms. Jesus said in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Jesus says another, another counselor, because Jesus has been their counselor until now. But he's going away to be with the Father. Yet the Father will replace God the Son with them by sending God the Spirit. And he will be with them forever, just as Christ promised at the end of Matthew, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For the Christian, life is a process of learning never to doubt God's goodness and his presence. When we're young in the faith, we may get angry with God. Because, for example, we get a bad grade in school and we blame God. Where was God when I needed him for those test answers? And then we grow up a little, but we still blame God when we don't get the job we applied for. Where were you, God, in that interview or afterward? Eventually, we begin to realize that God, who says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he really is there for his children and with his children. As John 14, 17 says, You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. In you, there, could be translated among you. God the Spirit is not just with me and with you individually, but he is a shared presence that unites us and makes God's various individual people with all of our divergences and differences. He makes us one people. Before God and with God, if I may use the analogy, he makes us a team instead of just a bunch of collected individuals, all who have some dollop of the Holy Spirit in us. We become a collective, and there's something that unites us. There's an identity. There's something that gels, and we begin to make decisions, and we begin to express our identities in ways that sort of automatically allow and and, uh, adjust for the fact that we're not individual people, alone. A second work of the Holy Spirit, he distinguishes God's people from the world. He distinguishes God's people from the world. Look at verse 17. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who have a relationship with God by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, and those who don't. Now, there are a lot of people who go to church and have various degrees of affiliation with churchianity, and they may or may not have a living presence with God through faith in Christ. But those who do have a living living relationship, the only way you can have a living relationship with God the Father who is invisible in heaven through Christ who is at right hand is if God does it. We don't have a technology like to call God up. (laughs) Uh, He comes to his people. His Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for utterance, it says in Romans 8. And Christians are people who have opened their lives to the invasion of the true and living God who makes us his people by his living presence through the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that we're better than people who don't have the Spirit. As we've already heard from the children's sermon and through our confession of sin this morning, we're no great shakes in ourselves. If God grants us his living presence, and he does through Christ, it's his grace. It's not our goodness. The world doesn't accept the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't write off the world. And neither should we by thinking we're better or different in the sense that we're superior and don't want anything to do with the world. Because we have the Spirit and know him, we understand some things that others do not. And we understand that, They don't get it. And we can grasp why we may seem weird to nonbelievers at times. If anything, we should pray for those who don't know Christ. We should cut them slack because they lack the light of hope and guidance and wisdom and strength and much more that the Spirit of God and the Word of God provide. Now, there's a lot more to say about the Spirit's ministry to us, but our time is limited. What we've seen is that Christ speaks volumes in just a few verses on the night of the Last Supper. He lit the fuse that would explode at Pentecost by showing the Father who sent them and sends us his eternal and powerful Spirit. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, I don't know about this sermon. Should Pentecost really be likened to a destructive explosion? And that's a good point. So let me illustrate the power of Pentecost in a more positive way. Uh, This month, it turns out, May 2016, marked another anniversary. And it's the 14th anniversary, so May 2002 the anniversary of an old friend of mine returning to his home country, which is Sudan. And he was born there, not far from a place we've heard a lot about in recent years, Darfur. And he converted from Islam as a young man. And I met him shortly after that, in 1995, when I was teaching one summer at Nile Theological College in Khartoum, Sudan. My friend was able to escape Sudan in the late 90s, and he needed to. Christians helped him get a college education in the United States. And then he got a master's degree in the United States. And he got political asylum because his life was in danger. And he got American citizenship. But then it hit him. God was calling him. He had to go back to Sudan. This was an explosion that rocked his life. But it's also changed life for thousands of people since then, and here are a few things that have happened in his own words. Since I decided to move back to Sudan to bear witness and share the love and mercy of Jesus, I've seen fulfillment of Jesus' promise. I bear witness to you that I have seen the hungry I bear witness that many thirsty people got something to drink. I'm referring to the well that was drilled for us by the vineyard church of, and he names the the vineyard church that is one of the many churches that supports his work there. I bear witness that we have two big houses. Now, don't think of houses in Chesterfield. Think of houses in Sudan, but still, two big areas with roofs over them, where strangers who have been displaced by civil war and other hardships have been invited to live. And virtually all these people... This is in the north. So virtually all these people would be Muslim background. I've personally distributed lots of clothes you sent for the poor. He's writing to people in the United States he knows. I bear witness the sick got healed and visited and prayed for. I've seen the illiterates learn how to read and write in the school we operate. And widows learn how to sew. We all know and believe that credit is due fully to the Father from whom all blessings flow. People often ask me the question, who pays for all these projects? And I tell them, American Christians. And, of course, all this has put a human face to America. They saw different Americans than the ones they see in TV, fighting and carrying big gun machines. I'm just reading what my my friend wrote. Big gun. I think he might mean machine guns, but you get the idea. Just as I said, all these buildings and the three churches the Father has bestowed on us over the last 14 years, and now we are having intensive meetings and coming up with a neat plan to plant a fourth church. We've chosen to identify the team members and picked the location and the ethnic group we are planting the new house church in. And we've raised 60% of the cash we need for this operation. I trust the Lord will provide the rest. Please lift up the fourth church in your prayers. All this is in Sudan, a terrorist state, a Sharia law country working hard to stamp out what Christians remain there. Yet what began at Pentecost continues even under that pressure. The Diffuse Jesus lit of people believing in him, the son of God. And, of course, that's anathema in a Muslim country. The Koran is very emphatic. God has no son. And they're teaching in a sharia law country. Yes, he does, and he's Jesus. The fuse that people lit of people believing in Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen, people finding forgiveness, people finding meaning in serving God and others. Pentecostal faith in Christ continues to blast people out of their self-centeredness and their selfishness and their fear and their commitment to a dead-end false religion. They have Islam. We have consumerism and secularism. And there's a stronger knowledge of God in society in Islamic countries than there is in the West that prides itself that it's not as benighted as Muslim countries. That's one reason the gospel finds such a reception among Muslim people. They're pre-evangelized to believe in God. At least they believe in God, whereas in the West, many people from school age up are propagandized that God essentially is just a superstition of backward, stupid people. So if you don't like the fertilizer plant image, think of this former Muslim working on a fourth church plant in a hostile land and the hundreds that have come to faith through his faithfulness to our faithful God in Christ. Whatever the image, that is explosive, difference-making power. Christ's final words in John 14 are great words for us as we turn now to sharing the meal and the Christ who first broke bread and gave the wine of the new covenant confirmed at Pentecost. And I'll read the last words of our text to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who comes through faith in your Son. And thank you for all that you've done around the world and are doing this morning, uniting your people and making your word fruitful in so many ways. Thank you for this Muslim who you brought to faith as you brought the Jew, Paul, to faith long ago. And John who wrote this gospel letter and millions and we could say billions since. And thank you for having mercy on our souls And through your power, bringing the light and hope and life of the gospel into our lives. Thank you that you revealed the Father to us and you've sent your Holy Spirit to unite us with you. And we pray that you would help our lives to be fruitful here in Chesterfield as your word is so fruitful in other parts of the world today. Receive our praise and thanks for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.